0: and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Support for the next Yellowstone comes from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. A nonprofit news organization that partners with journalists and newsrooms to support in depth reporting and education around the globe. You can learn more at PulitzerCenter.org. From Wyoming Public Media, this is the Modern West Stories to Match Our Scenery. I'm Melody Edwards. that phrase, stories to match our scenery, we kind of retrofitted it from a quote from writer Wallace Stegner. He said, the West is the native home of hope because it's here we aspire to build a society to match our scenery. And that scenery, Stegner said protecting it as public land, was America's best idea. Imagine trying to get Congress to agree to something like that these days. But not too long ago, Some people got to thinking that a large swath of the Great Plains in Montana also needed those special protections, and they figured out a way to do it without Congress's help. Reporter Nate Hedgie takes us on an exploration of a new kind of national park, one as expansive as Yellowstone. He talks to the man who started this project and to lots of the folks who will be affected by this enormous undertaking.
1: This is a story about what happens when we lose faith in our government's ability to protect our environment. Right now, a 16-year-old girl from Sweden is the face of that distrust. Greta Thunberg summed it up best when she talked to world leaders at the United Nations in September.
2: People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you!
1: Thunberg blamed politicians and bureaucrats for turning a blind eye on the natural world. From raging wildfires and deforestation in the Amazon, to hurricanes pounding the Caribbean, to the hundreds of plants and animals that go extinct every year. But what if there's another way to save the planet? One that doesn't rely on governments, but instead turns to the world's richest people for help? That's the idea behind American Prairie Reserve. It's a new kind of national park, one that's privately funded and free to the public.
3: When it's complete, it'll be roughly a million acres larger than Yellowstone, four times the size of Yosemite National Park. About 5,000 square miles, which equates to about Africa's Serengeti.
1: We're talking the largest wildlife sanctuary in the lower 48. Supporters say it'll rewind the clock and make the prairies look just like they did before white settlers arrived. A place filled with wolves, grizzly bears, and thousands of wild, genetically pure bison. Most of the animals you'd see at Yellowstone, but without all the millions of tourists.
4: A place in North America that we could once again experience those large, large herds of big, incredible animals the way that, uh, that our forebears did.
1: But here's the catch. There's already people living where this reserve wants to be. A close-knit community of ranching families who feel they're being drummed out of the land. A land they've worked on for generations.
2: For them to be successful in their goals, to meet their goals, we can't be here. And that's not okay with us.
1: Over the next hour, we'll hear from all these folks in a story about the changing face of the American West and what happens when we lose faith in the government to protect our wild places. I'm Nate Hedgie of our Mountain West News Bureau, and this is The Next Yellowstone. The idea of a massive wildlife preserve in the Great Plains has been around for almost two centuries. Back in the 1830s, the painter George Catlin argued it should be protected as a national park. But it took an ex-Silicon Valley entrepreneur named Sean Garrity to finally get this idea off the ground. When I first meet him, he's standing outside of a company-owned Chevy Suburban eating some deli meat. You Sean? Hey there! Hey, how you doing?
3: Having lunch. Great, great. Me. Nice they to me too
1: Garrity looks like he just walked out of an REI catalog. Gray curly hair, muscled forearms, a nice plaid shirt. He's parked near a grocery store in the small town of Winifred, Montana.
3: you going to hop in with me? Yeah, if that's okay. all right. Yeah. Let's do that. All right, that sounds we'll great. We'll go down
1: the road. Gherty's taking me on a tour of his reserve. It's about an hour and a half away. But as I get into his SUV, I notice there's a dead swallow in the grill. The bird's head is poking out at an awkward angle. It's a disturbing sight, but nothing new in northeastern Montana. This is rough, tough country. The kind of place where you see flattened rattlesnakes in the middle of the road or dead, rotting deer in ditches. But there's also beauty. And as we're driving, Garrity spots a kestrel hunting along a dirt road. You don't see kestrels very much, so turn over there and it'll hover for a little while. That's cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful bird. Garrity has always had a thing for wildlife. He grew up hiking and hunting with his parents in central Montana. But after college, he and his wife eventually moved to the West Coast. Actually, I tried to be a travel writer for Outside Magazine, that didn't go very well. Tried to do
3: another business in Seattle, that was failing, landed in Silicon Valley, just the right place at the right time, the right idea.
1: That idea was to consult for big name companies like Apple and AT&T. Garrity earned a lucrative living in a comfortable house in the hills above Santa Cruz. But eventually, Montana beckoned him back that's where he first heard about this idea of protecting the prairies. And at first glance, honestly, it's kind of hard to see why. The northern Great Plains are often known as that flat, drab, boring part of a cross-country drive between Chicago and Seattle. You don't see any trees, no water. But Garrity has always felt that there's something more out here. Something beautiful out there beyond the car window. And now he's pulling over his Chevy Suburban to show me.
3: We arrange a couple of
1: things, get a water oh, yeah. here. Absolutely, you need any help at all? no. Nope. Nope. Okay. We get out and begin hiking up a steep, grassy hill. And when we finally reach the top, the drab, boring prairies open up into a series of deep, white canyons cut through by a wide, muddy river. It looks like a miniature grand canyon.
3: What you're seeing here is incredible beauty of the Missouri River out in front of us here and those beautiful cliffs and the a uh, raking light coming across in the afternoon
1: here. This is the country Garrity wants to protect. A wild, rugged place full of steep coolies and silty streams. It's known as the Missouri Breaks, and it forms the heart of this proposed 3.2 million acre preserve. A place where wild native animals could roam free once again, just like they did 150 years ago before white settlers arrived.
3: Over here would be some elk. Over here would be bison. A little on the riverbanks would be a mama grizzly bear with two or three little cubs walking along in the mud there.
1: Garrity says he wants to save what's left of the Great Plains. But there's also a hint of the personal in his mission. He wants to build something that lasts longer than a Silicon Valley company. And this part could be it.
3: To work on something, pour your heart into it and arrange it like a giant work of art and the public, by and large, would appreciate and realize it would last far, far beyond my lifetime. That just seemed like a dream come true.
1: But right now, American Prairie is still mostly a dream. For the past 18 years, Garrity and his team have been building this park, slowly. Buying ranches, phasing out the cattle, and replacing them with genetically pure wild bison. They've purchased close to 30 properties so far, but they need at least another 50. And these aren't easy negotiations. Driving around, you see signs everywhere saying save the cowboy, stop the American Prairie Reserve.
3: Folks are not going to go to town and with a megaphone walk down Main Street and say how great we are. It's a good way to be drummed out of the village.
1: But the project's efforts have garnered a lot of positive attention from international media outlets and celebrities like Tom Brokaw and Ken Burns. Which is a good thing, Garrity says, because these ranches are really expensive. We're talking millions of dollars.
3: It's going to take a lot of money. Where else do you go?
1: Certainly not the federal government, Garrity says. It hasn't built a really big national park like this since Death Valley in 94. So instead, he and his nonprofit organization have turned to some of the world's richest people for help. What's your condensed uh, sales pitch if I was a, uh, let's say I'm a, a multimillionaire? Are you? It goes better when you really are. <laughs> uh, yeah, really? Well, you know public radio. You make a lot of money.
3: Well, if, if we were just walking around out here where there's no other people and I run into somebody and they're a multimillionaire and they say, where am I and what is this thing? I'd say, well, you you happen upon one of the most amazing conservation projects going on anywhere in the world.
1: Garrity tells potential donors that this is a solid investment in a new kind of national park one that isn't funded by the federal government. Instead, it's built...
3: Through philanthropic dollars, without tapping government money or raising taxes to do it, and make it open to yourself and your friends and your family to come and enjoy it.
1: That sales pitch has worked, over and over. American Prairie won't release its full list of donors because of privacy concerns. But it has received millions of dollars from some prominent philanthropists. They include a German billionaire, a handful of New York City-based investment bankers, and heirs to the Mars Candy Company. But there's been a movement growing recently to take a harder look at where charitable organizations get their money. For instance, in New York City earlier this year, protests led to the resignation of a board member and major donor who had ties to the weapons industry. And critics like political science professor Rob Reisch argue that American Prairie's big donations come with baggage too. The structure of global capitalism,
4: which they had a role in upholding, is partly responsible
1: for the degradation of the environment. Riesch is the director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. He points to a couple of the reserve's big donors. As top executives in the finance industry, they help steer major investments in oil, gas, or coal, industries that contribute heavily to the climate crisis. Suresh says it's kind of hypocritical for these people to give money to help the environment while making money by hurting it.
4: The idea of taking that pile of wealth and setting oneself up as a philanthropist and engaging in a whole bunch of do-gooding projects and getting the social standing of being a donor and reaping the social rewards of philanthropy is at some odds with the
1: initial act of the money-making. But investment bankers argue they act as fiduciaries. Essentially, they aren't investing their own money. They're investing other people's money. So they can't make a moral or political judgment on where that cash goes because it isn't theirs. For his part, American Prairie founder Sean Garrity says the Reserve can't afford to be too picky about where it gets its cash. Plus, he points out everyone plays a part in climate change.
3: The person that is, uh, that is uh, on the board of directors of an oil company is no more evil than the person who who ravenously consumes the product.
1: Garrity even points a finger at me. I drove more than 2,000 miles in a 99 Toyota Tacoma to talk to him and to see the reserve for myself. The way he sees it.
3: The person who puts the gas in their car or uses the coal in their house to heat or the person who gets on a non-essential jet trip to take a vacation or go to a wedding or something like that is uh, is the person actually creating the business and encouraging the oil companies to keep on doing what they're doing.
1: Garity says if he cuts all those people out, American prairie would lose all of its donors, including regular folks who only give $25 or $50 a year. He says that would doom the project and the chances of saving one of the world's last remaining grasslands.
3: Over a million acres of native prairie was plowed in this area we're looking at right now last year, just last year. This wildlife habitat is going away and there's almost none left. This is the last bit in the Great Plains, for the most part, to where you can do a project of this size.
1: And 3.2 million acres is big. Now, it's important to note here that American Prairie won't own all of that land. In fact, most of that huge acreage is actually owned by the federal government. But what the reserve will do is lease the grazing rights on many of those public lands, which will give them more power over how that land is managed. And that patchwork of public and private lands is roughly the same size as Connecticut. It takes hours to drive across, and there are signs warning you to bring enough food and water for days. That's because when it rains here, the dirt roads turn into gumbo. It's like driving on bacon grease. Even the UPS vans look like monster trucks with four-wheel drive. It's wild, desolate country. But it's a landscape that people like Danny Kinka have fallen in love with. Kinko works for American Prairie as its chief wildlife ecologist. And when I meet him, he's crashing through tall sagebrush and yellow green grasses on a ranch near the reserve's boundary. The noonday sun is beating down and I'm hiking with him. My socks are already getting full of these sharp, pointy grass seeds. And then something big and black sips by.
4: What's that? Some kind of cicada. I saw a of yeah, just someone back there, and I thought it was an exoskeleton. I thought it was a molt, and I was like, oh no, that's, that, that bug's alive. <laughs> yeah, there's one there.
1: Another cicada lands on some sagebrush, and then one latches onto my shirt. Ooh. Oh yeah, hey, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, there <you> See, <laughs> that's a big cicada. cicada. These big cicadas, along with some biting black flies and a flock of lark buntings, are pretty much our only company on today's journey. We're about an hour down a dirt road and miles away from good cell service.
4: I like this landscape because it feels wild. It feels far away from kind of the hustle and bustle of civilization. It's
1: relaxing. It's also about as different as you can get from the suburbs of central Florida. That's where Kinka grew up. He's in his mid-30s with gray-flecked hair, a bushy beard, and he's wearing an earring. Kinka was the son of a country club manager in Florida. But he was always pulled towards wild places like this. First, it was just public parks near his house.
4: And then it was national parks, and then it was national monuments, and then it was as far away as I could get down a dirt road just to see what was down there. And this is pretty far down a dirt road where we are right now.
1: I agree. Tall grasses swell and roll like waves in an ocean. Cottonwood trees shudder in the wind. It's a beautiful scene but the prairies also feel lonesome and empty to a lot of people. That makes sense. There isn't a lot of wildlife here. Kinka says it wasn't always like this.
4: Lewis and Clark describe a scene of hardly being able to look in any direction without seeing vast, uncountable herds of wildlife. So if the place feels empty, I think there's a reason for that. There's something missing. This is a blank canvas upon which is supposed to be painted some of the most interesting and incredible animals that have ever walked the continent.
1: Not just grizzlies, wolves, and bison, but even little swift foxes, ferrets, and of course, kestrels. The project is creating a giant safe space for all these animals in the reserve.
4: A place in North America that we could once again experience those large, large herds of big, incredible animals the way that our forebears. did.
1: You can't buy wild grizzly bears or wolves, but under Montana law, you can buy bison.
4: Bison are considered livestock by the state of Montana, which means unlike other wildlife species, they can be owned. And so we are able to buy bison.
1: And the bears and wolves, they're coming back anyways. Their populations are rebounding and the animals are slowly migrating to the Great Plains on their own. In fact, that's why we're on this neighboring ranch right now, to see if any of those critters have crossed through here and into the reserve. I climbed down an embankment with Kinka and his wildlife technician, Katie Beatty. This is where I'm cursing myself for not wearing uh, long socks. Oh. They're searching for a wildlife camera they attach to a tree near a creek bed. But when we find it, it's been knocked over by a cow. And it's wet.
4: Does it smell? Smell your hands. A little bit. Oh, God.
1: Kinka says it could just be some stagnant water, but... It does
4: look like pee to me. I'm pretend
0: that not.
4: For Katie's benefit, I'll lie and say that it's water, but it's definitely pee.
1: <laughs> But the camera isn't totally ruined by cowpea. They switch out its memory card, restock the batteries, and set it back up. Katie Beatty hasn't captured any pictures of wolves or grizzly bears yet, but she has captured pictures of elk, coyote, deer, and her favorite, mountain lions.
2: It's such an elusive animal that you don't see that often, so being able to capture so many pictures of it, and it's just really cool to
0: look at.
1: All this work, checking cameras and capturing pictures, is funded through private money. And while the size and scope of American Prairie Reserve is pretty novel, its idea of environmental philanthropy is not. Billionaires like Ted Turner and Bill Gates have been doing it for years. And take Grand Teton National Park. It was created in part using land purchased by the oil industry heir and philanthropist John D. Rockefeller Jr.
5: Heir to the industrial fortune created by his father, he lived simply and devoted much of his life to financing charitable, scientific, and educational projects.
1: Rockefeller quietly bought the land from ranchers in the area and then donated it to the federal government. But like what's happening today with American Prairie Reserve, many locals at the time were furious. Cattlemen threw a fit. They staged protests, cursed out Rockefeller, and compared the federal government to a bunch of Nazis. Still, Grand Teton was eventually completed in 1950, and it became one of the most popular parks in the country. But unlike Rockefeller, American Prairie doesn't plan on donating its private land to the federal government. It's going to keep it. Why not do the same for the American Prairie Reserve? Why not give it to the federal government?
4: Well, I would turn around the question and say, why, why should we give it back to the national government?
1: Kinka says the government hasn't shown itself to be the best protector of the environment. Especially, he says, under the Trump administration. He points to what happened when the president shrunk two national monuments in Utah in 2017.
4: What we thought of as like protected forever doesn't look so protected forever.
1: But he says the government can't strip away protections on privately owned land.
4: And so in that light, a private park, so to speak, a private park that's managed for the enjoyment of the public, seems a lot, a lot more mm, permanent.
1: Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to note here that American prairie won't own all of the proposed 3.2 million acre preserve. But it will lease grazing rights on many of the public lands, which will give them more power over how that land is managed. Former National Park Service Director John Jarvis has no problem with that, or its ownership of the private lands there.
3: They don't have to give it to the government. I don't think that's necessary at all.
1: But he does worry about what all this means for the reserve in the long run.
3: If it's just a bunch of private lands and a bunch of people that get together and say, yeah, we're committed to this, in 50 years they're all going to be dead. And then the, the next generation says, you know, I want to take that cruise. You know, or I want to buy that plane I've been thinking about, so I'm going to sell that property.
1: I ask wildlife ecologist Danny Kinka whether he's concerned. Can we really trust private enterprise to protect this land forever and not sell it or lock the public out?
4: I, uh, this, oh God, um, we, man, how do I answer this question without sounding like a lawyer? Um, I don't know how else to put it in. I, I, I wouldn't work here if that wasn't true. If it gets locked up tomorrow, I'm leaving. I'm not working for this place. I don't want anything to do with that.
1: Kinka says American Prairie's mission is to create a park for the people.
4: Nobody here, nobody that I work with, none of my colleagues have any interest in creating a big park for super, super rich people. It's, the idea is that, you know, 22-year-old Danny can come out here in his two-door Toyota Tercel and get lost in the middle of the Prairie Reserve and discover wildness for his, for himself with, you know, only a few pennies to pinch together. That, that's, that's deeply, deeply important to me. That's why I work here.
0: When we return, it turns out John doesn't have to worry. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all.
1: The idea of some future grandson or daughter trying to sell this land because they want to buy a yacht or a plane isn't possible. Here's why. According to American Prairie's own bylaws, if the reserve fails and the land needs to be sold off, it has to go to a similar-minded conservation group, which means this land may never be owned by ranchers again. That's a nightmare scenario for many of the locals here because they despise the reserve. They say it threatens a culture that's been in power here for more than 150 years. We're talking cattle, cowboys, and the ranching way of life. You see a lot of signs out here saying, save the cowboy, stop the American Prairie Reserve. They're taped to windows, put up in lawns. One is nailed to a shed outside of the First Creek Community Hall. It's a little white building surrounded by grassland and farm fields just north of some American Prairie-owned lands. Inside, a small group of ranchers are greeting each other and chatting. It's a hot Sunday afternoon, but most everyone is wearing church clothes. We're talking snap-button Western shirts, combed hair, and blue Wrangler jeans. See, this community center also serves as a makeshift church for ranchers on Sunday. There's a wooden cross in the corner held up by a Christmas tree stand. A 4-H flag is posted to the wall. Traveling preacher Hal DeBoer presses play on a black boombox and leads his tiny congregation in a country-style hymn.
0: In a shady green pasture, so rich and so sweet.
1: Even though he's from Florida, DeBoer has lived and preached here in Montana for 44 years. He fell in love with the ranching culture. And today, he's wearing a big, shiny belt buckle and cowboy boots. DeBoer says he can't quite put into words just how much the prairie means to him.
6: I want to be here. I don't want to be anywhere else. It's like I'm I'm a part of the land, and it just burns in me.
1: And it burns in many of the ranching families who have lived in this pocket of the Great Plains for more than a century. The whole place is like one big neighborhood where everyone knows everyone. So when news starts spreading that a neighbor just sold their sprawling ranch to the American Prairie Reserve, the parishioners are shaken up. I, I'm sad by it. That's rancher Peggy Bergsegel. She says, sure, she understands why someone might sell their big ranch.
2: They lived hard, they had a tough time, and they want to live well. Greed.
1: <laughs> but Bergsegel says she'd never sell it especially to the reserve.
2: Never, ever. They can drag me with wild horses across the prairie. I won't. (laughs) I won't.
1: It's a sentiment shared by a lot of locals here. Northeastern Montana has long been known as cattle country. And I've heard many different arguments against the project, some bordering on the crazy. Like this is a cunning plot by the United Nations to clear everyone out from the Great Plains. But most arguments aren't conspiracy theories. And the most common one boils down to this. God gave people this land so it can be worked, so we can produce food or fuel from it. Pastor Hal de says that's a biblical idea. God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden.
6: And the very first words that he said to man was, I want you to work this and take care of it. So to me, that is what the ranchers and farmers are doing. They're working the land, but they're taking care of it.
1: This Christian idea of stewarding the land drove white settlement out west more than a century ago. DeBoer says he always thought of God as the
6: first farmer. He planted a garden, (laughs) so he's for the farming profession.
1: But ranching and farming, this pocket of the Great Plains, is really tough. Especially during the long winter. That's when temperatures drop, well below freezing. A constant wind roars across the open prairie. Snow drifts so high that roads sometimes disappear. The sky and the land become separated by a single thin gray horizon. Once it finally thaws in early summer, the land becomes manic. Temperatures soar into the triple digits. Rains come heavy and hard, or they don't come at all. Massive fires sweep across the prairie. Sometimes they burn so hot, they melt steel. This was the world white homesteaders first laid eyes upon more than 100 years ago. They discovered a country that was more like a desert than their green European hometowns. Families grew isolated. And during these homesteading days, an affliction of insanity rippled across the Great Plains. It was known as Prairie Madness, brought on by the terrifying loneliness of settling a new hard land. One magazine writer described insane asylums filling with Scandinavians who came off the Great Plains. There was even a haunting folk song about the prairies that became popular in the West around this time, Oh, Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie. When the homesteading boom finally busted after World War I, the population in eastern Montana plummeted, and it's pretty much been in decline ever since. That's one reason why American Prairie Reserve targeted this spot in the first place. There's a lot of native grassland here and a lot of land for sale. But some ranching families never gave up on their spreads, and they aren't about to sell out now, even though the reserve is paying millions of dollars for each property. I mean, They could buy a nice retirement home by a lake somewhere with that kind of money. But they don't leave. And I want to know why. So the next morning, I find myself moving cattle on the C Lazy J Ranch. The grasses are green out here from a recent thunderstorm, and dozens of big, black cows are lining up near an electric fence. The animals are getting ready to cross into a new pasture. Rancher Connie French is trying to help them out.
2: I might go pull that orange post and let it loose on that one.
1: French doesn't look like a stereotypical there. rancher. Instead, she reminds me of someone's artsy, garden-loving grandmother. Curly gray hair, a big broad sun hat, and the deeply tanned face of someone who spends every day outdoors. But as she's lifting some electric fence to help her cows get through to the new pasture, something suddenly makes her stop. Can
2: you hear it? I just heard it over here.
1: She creeps slowly over to some sagebrush and then she spots it. A coiled rattlesnake.
2: Oh yeah, there he goes. <laughs> gives you the creeps, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it definitely gives you the creeps. We're only about 20 miles away from the nearest hospital, but the dirt roads out here are pretty torn up. And if one of us got bit, it probably wouldn't be good. French cautiously moves away from the snake.
2: Nice thing about rattlesnakes, they generally let you know.
1: Yeah, they got they got courtesy.
2: They do. Yep.
1: Rattlesnakes... Biting black flies, the hordes of mosquitoes that hatch this time of year, the prairies of northeastern Montana can be downright nasty to live in. But French loves the challenge.
2: You know, maybe it's like when people skydive or something. It's, it's a little bit of an adrenaline. It's, it's at self-sufficiency, maybe, feeling like I can handle whatever gets thrown at me.
1: But the American Prairie Reserve, that's a different beast.
2: For them to be successful in their goals, to meet their goals, we can't be here. And that's not okay with us.
1: Now, it's not like the reserve is wiping out ranching all across the Great Plains. But it is challenging the control ranchers have had in northeastern Montana for more than 150 years. It's a control that has put them in the state legislature, on county commission seats, and has kept cattle king here. But as land prices in the West get more expensive and ranchers struggle to find family members to take over their spreads when they die, that control is weakening. And the idea of an outsider like American Prairie swooping in is intolerable. The reserve's notion of rewilding the West and returning wild bison to the plains really bothers Connie's husband, Craig. He compares those animals to impressionable kids.
3: That, to me, is like telling a teenager, just go do as you please without any boundaries. And that's definitely not a way to parent and letting animals roam free and do as they please is definitely not a way, in my view, to steward land.
1: Craig has lived out here all of his life. He's a big guy with a loose Wrangler shirt and a straw hat. And he worries that 3.2 million acres isn't big enough to support the reserve's goal of 10,000 wild bison.
3: When God was doing it, uh, he had a lot bigger playground. We just have this small little
1: sandbox. Scientists from the World Wildlife Fund say otherwise. But both Connie and Craig are rooted in that Christian notion of stewarding the land. They say it's the best way to take care of what's left of the prairies. And while some ranchers here overgrazed the land and plowed up native grasses, most did a pretty good job taking care of it. That's a big reason why this area is considered one of the last intact grassland ecosystems in the world. The ranchers here are pretty good stewards. Powerful conservation groups have even taken notice. They're working with some ranchers here to help them save what's left of the prairie while at the same time sustainably raising cattle.
2: We are the best hope to keep this land here. I, I really feel like like ranchers, these land stewards, are the best option for for conservation.
1: That is, if the ranching lifestyle can still hold on. The number of agricultural jobs has dropped here by more than a third since 1970. And even though folks invest their lives into the land, sometimes their kids just don't want to take it over. So they sell out to the highest bidder, whether it's a neighboring ranch, a wealthy out-of-stater, or the Prairie Reserve. But French says she'll never sell out to the reserve. Because if she does that, she'll lose something deeper than the land.
2: I don't want to live a soft life. I don't want my grandkids to live a soft life. I don't want them to have air conditioning at the push of a button, or heat at the push of a button, or um, things delivered to their door. I want them to have to work for some things. I don't, I don't want life to be too easy.
1: But as America moves away from its ranching and farming roots, wild places like the reserve are becoming a sort of proving ground for urban dwellers. Somewhere where they can get lost on epic trail runs or three-day backpacking
2: trips, so then you're a tourist, you're a visitor, you're an observer. So you're there for a short time and then, and then you come back home. When you actually live there, you're a participant. You are involved in the day-to-day life of not just you, your animals, but the land around you, the wildlife, the grass, the bugs. You are an active participant that's taking care of that place.
1: French worries will lose that deep, on-the-ground knowledge if ranchers leave the prairies but a handful have sold to the reserve, and there are locals who like what the project is doing. I met this one rancher outside of an Albertsons grocery store in Lewistown, Montana. She was carrying a pack of White Claw alcoholic seltzer waters. She said if it wasn't American Prairie buying up these lands, it would be somebody else, someone like the Wilkes Brothers. They made their fortunes in the fracking business and are notorious in the West for locking up land and closing down public access with armed guards. At least the reserve isn't doing that, she says. But this woman didn't want to talk to me on record. In fact, almost all of the supporters I spoke with didn't. Ranching is a powerful business out here, and you don't cross party lines. But one guy did reach out to me over Twitter. He said he was willing to talk. He's a hunter and says he'll meet me at 7 in the morning on a dirt road, miles away from the nearest town. So now I'm waiting for him to show up. His name is Justin Schaff, and he just texted me to tell me he's running a little late. He got turned around on the maze of back roads to get here. But now I can finally see his black Toyota Tundra kicking up a long trail of dust in the distance. And when he finally pulls up, some alt country music is blasting from his radio. Shaf turns the music down and moves some gear off his passenger seat. You got all your stuff there? I do, I'm all set. Yeah, I'm good, ready to roll. I hop in his truck and we take off down a really rutted two-track dirt road. Shaf looks like a high school linebacker. He's 27 years old with a shaved head, wearing cargo pants, and he's taking me to one of his favorite hunting spots. You see, while Shaf works as a train conductor for the local railroad, his passion is hunting.
6: If I'm not hunting, I'm thinking about hunting and planning hunts. And when I'm sitting in the motel for work or when I'm sitting at home in the recliner, I'm looking at maps and looking at Google Earth. And...
1: Trying to find that perfect place to hunt. As the road peters out, Schaff pulls over his truck. We grab some water and begin hiking in. It's not big game hunting season yet, so we're just scouting locations.
6: We're hoping to see some elk um, and definitely some bighorn sheep. And I have seen some pretty good mule deer in here too.
1: We climb over sweet clover and sagebrush. This seems like an easy place to get lost, but I'm not too worried. Schaff has lived in eastern Montana all of his life. His great-great-grandparents homesteaded just a few miles south of here, near the Musselshell River. They lasted about 40 years before quitting and heading into
6: town. They didn't have enough land to support the ranching that you need. And uh, I don't think the farming was cutting it at all.
1: It was a fate suffered by a lot of homesteaders out here. They couldn't produce enough food or money to survive. The population has been dwindling ever since.
6: Whether that be kids moving to, uh, moving off to college and never coming back, or the loss of jobs or whatever it might be, the facts are that eastern Montana is, you know, our population is growing smaller with every year.
1: And that's why he sees opportunity with American prairie. He says ranching hasn't stymied the flow of people leaving this place, so maybe it's time to try something different.
6: Is a little shot of tourism, you know, capitalizing on hunter dollars, you know, bringing more hunters into this area? Is that, will that make the difference?
1: He thinks it might. After all, Schaff is a young guy, and he stayed in eastern Montana because all this wild country is in his backyard.
6: I can make more money other places, you know, but it's the outdoors and it's, Being able to pull my pickup up here and not talk to anyone and go for a hike all day long, that that keeps me here. You know, opportunity to just roam, I think, is enticing to young people.
1: There's a study that backs that up. The nonprofit Headwaters Economics found that so-called rural recreation counties are growing faster than counties that don't have a lot of hiking, hunting, and fishing opportunities. And here's an important point. Unlike a traditional national park, an American prairie reserve... You will be able to hunt. The project either owns or has leases on about 400,000 acres of land so far. And that's why Schaff has taken me here today. This land is part of the eventual 3.2 million acre reserve. Schaff sees this area becoming a sportsman's haven, a place where you can harvest elk, antelope, and even the reserve's privately owned herd of wild bison. Schaff knows a guy at his work who killed one of those bison last year.
6: He had a blast, I know. Yeah, you know. And every time I see him, it seems like he tells me the same story again. But that's as long as he had fun. You know, so. <laughs> we don't
1: spot any wild bison on this hiking trip. The animals are mostly confined to reserve lands north of us, but we do see a big herd of elk.
6: It's a crapload of elk, right out right there. Yep. There's about 45 of them. They appear to be cows and calves. Um, some of them are up grazing. The rest of them are just bedded down uh, out in the open. It's a pretty cool sight.
1: We spot more elk as we continue walking, but it's getting hot and the hike is grueling. The temperature climbs towards 90 as we stumble up deep ravines and past stands of ponderosa pine. Schaff says he understands that American Prairie Reserve is funded by rich people. Some who made millions helping finance industries that degrade the environment.
6: I do worry about like where that money comes from.
1: But he says this type of money doesn't just come from the private sector. He points to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That federal program takes royalties from offshore oil and gas drilling and then pumps it back into parks and public lands.
6: It's helped my kids' playground. It, you know, It's provided hunting opportunities for me. It's just the way the world works.
1: So long as that money is used to protect and provide public access to wild places like this, that's good enough for Schaff. But he also understands why so many locals hate the reserve. Sure, there's the fundamental difference between working the land and letting it grow wild. But, he says, there's also a strong distrust of powerful outsiders here. Schaff uses the nearby Missouri River as an example. It looks more like a wide lake here because it was dammed during the Great Depression. And to build that dam, the federal government forced out ranchers and farmers who lived at the valley bottom before flooding it.
6: I think we, if, if that lake wasn't there, we could see the old town site right there at the, as the lake started to turn south.
1: Schaff says what happened at the lake may have left a scar on the people who live here, a distrust of change that powerful people and groups like American Prairie can bring.
6: People have been down this path before of, of things changing abruptly, and those opinions of those people aren't, you know, they, they should be listened to, you know, and they, should, they shouldn't be taken lightly or just tossed out. I mean, they, they've got legitimate legitimate beliefs too. So we might disagree, but I'll still listen to them.
1: American Prairie did move relatively fast and hard on this landscape. It bought land to get itself a seat at the table. But that's the key here. It bought land from willing sellers. It isn't claiming eminent domain. It isn't flooding a valley. It isn't taking their land by force, or stripping them of their language, their religion, and their livelihood. That's what happened to the people who were here, before the ranchers, the farmers, and the hunters, the Ani and Nakoda. They lost their land and the animals they depended on most, bison. But now the reserve is bringing thousands of those animals back. And unlike other locals, many tribal members are cheering them on. So I drive out to the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation to hear from them. The reservation is sheltered in the shadow of the Little Rocky Mountains. In the winter here, the air gets so cold it hurts the back of your throat when you breathe. Everything is frozen it seems dead. But it's late July now. The grasses are tall and green, and folks are all gathered together near the town of Lodgepole for a powwow. When I arrive, a thunderstorm is building in the distance and the air is thick with humidity. Kids and families are everywhere. Generators hum from the backs of trailers. I grab a greasy hamburger from a food stand and strike up a conversation with its cook, Hannah eagle She's Nakoda, and she says she'd much rather be serving hamburgers made from bison rather than beef.
0: We can fill up cans and cans of fat, but with that buffalo, so you don't even get a quarter in the in the can of fat. It's lean meat. Yeah, it's straight lean, yeah.
1: She says it's a healthier food for people on a reservation to eat. And that's a big reason why she's excited about the reserve bringing back all these bison. It's
5: probably a blessing to have all those buffalo. It ain't probably, it is.
1: That's because for centuries, Plains tribes relied on the animal for everything. Buffalo hides, for example, were so thick and warm that heat couldn't escape. Even in the dead of winter, So they were tanned and transformed into clothes and teepee covers. The animal's bladder was used to haul water. Its dung was occasionally used as fuel for fires. Jeremy Ritchie is helping Haz Eagle cook burgers. He says bison even acted as a form of therapy for the tribes when families weren't getting along.
6: Our ancestors would say, go fast up on that mountain. Go look, see how the buffalo are, you know, look how they attend to their young. And so these are some of the ways of trying to stay away from the Western Ways is doing our cultural thing, and um, it's always been important.
1: That's why when the U.S. government and white hunters began their mass slaughter of the bison in the 19th century, it was like they were tearing out the tribe's heart. Kenneth Tuffy Helgeson is Nakoda. He sums it up best with stories his grandfather told him.
5: The buffalo to the Indian is a symbol of God. And when they tried to eradicate the Indian, they knew if they took away our main food source, our main symbol of God, that we would be, we would be rendered to uh, literally nothing.
1: Helgeson is a fourth-generation rancher here on the reservation. He's wearing a crisp white shirt, flat-brimmed hat, and blue jeans. He says the stories of bison and tribes mirrored each other after that slaughter. Wild bison were confined within a single national park, Yellowstone.
5: At the same time, Indians were put on a reservation in their own crowds and our populations dwindled.
1: Americans and Canadians tried to breed bison and cattle together to create a new kind of meat. And some intrepid ranchers raised domestic buffalo herds on farms. Meanwhile, Helgeson's family and many others were encouraged to cultivate the land like the white settlers did.
5: And we were given a plow and a horse and a bit and a bridle and a few head of cows to make a life for ourselves to, to, the word they used in those days was to assimilate the Indian to take away their culture, to give them a new culture.
1: The culture of ranching. That culture has held power over the West for more than 150 years. It imbued America with a love affair for the cowboy. Gave us John Wayne, bolo ties, the Marlboro Man. So Helgeson feels for the local ranching community, with American Prairie Reserve purchasing many of their spreads. Cattlemen are losing their neighbors and their way of life. But Helgeson also understands why some folks on the reservation don't have a lot of sympathy for them. A
5: person may think, uh, you're going to get your comeuppance and we're going to settle up and you're going to feel what we felt.
1: He does say not everyone feels that way. And there are a lot of different opinions about American Prairie Reserve on the reservation. But Helgeson says times are changing and the world is evolving. And right now, it's evolving in the tribe's favor. They're gaining a crucial piece of their culture back. American Prairie's wild herd will be the largest one in the lower 48. But the coin hasn't completely flipped. The tribes are able to hunt bison on reserve lands, but they currently have to pay a fee to do it. You see, American Prairie isn't giving tribes their traditional lands back. It plans to keep them so it can have a louder voice in how this patchwork of public and private lands is managed. That is is traditional land for the Nakoda, the Do you think that they should hand that land... Back over to the tribes? Is that the right thing to do?
5: You know, I believe, my friend, that uh, in our old songs, our old teachings, there's one song that our people sing, and it says, My friend, don't be foolish. The only thing that lives forever is the earth. We can fight over land, we can fight over dirt, we can fight over all these things, but really all you ever have is what's on your shoes. That's the only dirt that you'll ever own. The only ground that you'll ever own is on your shoes, and that'll fall off too.
1: With that, Helgeson shakes my hand and walks back to the
5: powwow.
1: He gave me a lot to think about. American Prairie's mission to save some of the last grasslands in the world comes with casualties, but change always does. Whether that's good or bad depends on your story and your relationship with this land. That night, I camp along the Missouri River Breaks. There's a saying that keeps rolling around my mind. It's from the end of a book by the Montana writer Richard Manning. He writes, eventually the breaks will break us, teach us to live within their rules. This is a tough country, and people will love it in their own way.
0: This story was reported by Nate Hedgie. I'm Melody Edwards. This episode was produced in collaboration with the Mountain West News Bureau and KUER. Kate Concanon was the editor, music and technical direction by Roddy Nickpour. Coming up next time, we'll build on the themes of this episode when we hear from two tribes in Wyoming working to bring wild Yellowstone bison back to their reservation. You know, most Native people know how important innately buffalo was, but even then we don't have a connection to it because we didn't have it around. Couldn't eat it, couldn't smell it, couldn't pray with it. Wild Bison, next time on The Modern West. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.